The Bible reading is Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 to 21. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all of the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom, and Daniel remained there until his, the first year of King Cyrus. When you're watching a movie or reading a book, you always need to remember where you're up to. I mean, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? That you need to remember where you're up to in the story so that you can understand who's who and what's happening in the story. There are some people in life who have a little bit more difficulty than others, especially when it comes to watching movies. I remember uh, sitting down one night with a member of our household to watch the classic Humphrey Bogart movie, Casablanca. Kids were off in bed, we settled in to enjoy this great film and it reached that climactic moment in the movie where Rick is sitting in the Cafe American and he has to make this incredible decision to give up the love of his life. It's, it, was a, it was a moving moment in the movie and I don't mind admitting that I had a, a little tear in my eye as all of this was taking place. And Debbie leaned over to me and said, now who's that again? <laughs> it's important to remember where you're up to in the story and it's important to, to remember who the characters are. You really do need to do that in order to understand the story. And that principle is not just true when it comes to watching movies, it's true when it comes to looking at the Bible as well. We need to understand where we're up to in the story and who the characters are. We start this morning to look at the book of Daniel and we need to understand where we're up to in the story. The book of Daniel is near the end of the Old Testament. It might not seem it because it's kind of stuck in the middle, but chronologically speaking, it's a book from right towards the very end of the of the story of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. We've been looking over these past few weeks at the book of uh, Leviticus, which is way back earlier in the story, set around 1500 BC, when the people of Israel were just beginning as a nation. But this story of Daniel is right towards the very end, 587 BC, almost a thousand years after the book of Leviticus. 
The people did eventually get into the land, the land that God had promised to give them under the leadership of of, uh, Joshua. They make their way into the land and the kingdom is established and we have three kings. We have Saul, then we have David and then we have King Solomon. But sadly after that, the kingdom divides because of the unfaithfulness of the people and we're left with two parts, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Uh, the northern kingdom, uh, they're wiped out by the Assyrians in 722 BC, completely overrun. Uh, we don't hear from that kingdom again, other than kind of hearing about the Samaritans who come up in the pages of the New Testament. Uh, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, it remained for a little bit over a 100 years after the northern kingdom disappeared, but eventually they were captured by the Babylonians. And that's the story that we read about in the book of Daniel. This is where we open up to the story of Daniel. It's uh, been an incredible time of unfaithfulness on the part of God's people Israel. They have ignored the prophets that God sent to them. They have ignored God. They've worshipped other gods. They've lived however they wanted to live. Oh, sure, there were little glimpses of faithfulness in there. Occasionally, they did have a good king, someone who led them faithfully and well, But by and large, these people ignored God and repeated calls from God through the prophets were also dismissed by the people of Israel. And God finally got to the point where he said, enough, this won't continue. And his judgment comes on them by by the Babylonians. Did you see what it says in the opening verses there of Daniel chapter 1? I hope you have got your Bible open there. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his gods. Nebuchadnezzar, The Babylonian king didn't just besiege Jerusalem, he smashed it, destroyed any buildings that were of any significance to the people. The Babylonians were the superpower in the world at that time and they have taken control of the land and as if to rub salt into the wounds of the people of Israel, he's dragged off a bunch of stuff from the temple as well, sacred items that they had in the temple and taken them back to his city and put them in the temples of his gods. It was as if Nebuchadnezzar wanted to say that his God had been able to defeat the God of Israel. But the really important thing to note here is that this didn't happen because the Babylonians were a superpower. This didn't happen because Nebuchadnezzar was clever or strategic in the way that he approached this. It all happened because it was God's judgment on these people. I mean, that's what it says in those opening verses, isn't it? This happened because of their repeated unfaithfulness. It's the Lord who has delivered the king into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. It is the Lord, it is God who has delivered these articles from the temple into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. God has allowed all this to happen. And not just allowed it, he's handed them over. And it's not just the religious articles or the king that have been handed over or plundered by the Babylonians. He's plundered the people as well. 
any young men, anyone who could be used by the Babylonians has been taken off to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. Have a look at verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Now, do you realise how this would have left Jerusalem completely devastated? Not only has he taken the gold, not only has he taken the king, he's taken any future that there might have been. Anyone who could have been a potential leader in the future to rebuild things in Jerusalem, well, they're now in Babylon. And they're now serving King Nebuchadnezzar. Any future that they may have had has disappeared. The situation is looking completely hopeless in Jerusalem. This is without a doubt, the lowest point in the history of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to take these young Jewish boys and to leave Jerusalem decimated. The plan was to take the best and the brightest to build up his kingdom. Those young Jewish men would be trained in Babylonian culture. See what it says there, verse number 5. Ashpenaz was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Now they may be out of the land, out of their land, out of the land that God had given them and the temple may have been destroyed but Daniel and his friends are determined to live faithful, obedient lives. They've got no idea what that's going to look like in Babylon, but they're determined to do it. To t- determined to live faithful lives in less than favourable conditions. And in this opening chapter, this is where Daniel and his friends received their first test, and it came to do with this issue of eating food from the king's table. We're told that the young men were in training and they were given food from the king's table. And these men were going to have the best food available to them in the kingdom. would be the best menu in the land, but you saw what happened in the video. It's not quite exactly what the passage says, but verse 8 says this, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked that the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, it's not exactly clear from the passage how he would have been defiling himself with food from the king's table. It could possibly have been, like the video said, that it was contravening Jewish food laws, but the passage doesn't actually say that. It may have been that the food had been offered to idols, uh, offered to gods in, in Babylon, and therefore they've chosen not to eat it. It may be that eating food from the king's table kind of fellowshipping with the king is showing your alignment with the king, your allegiance to the king and maybe that's why they didn't want to eat the food from the table. We don't exactly know but Daniel did and he knew that this was one of those points where he needed to say no. Daniel knew that this was one of those times when he needed to draw the line It's interesting when you read through this passage how many different places Daniel and his friends seem quite happy to compromise. 
Um, they're willing to work with the Babylonians, even to work for the Babylonians and to build up the kingdom. The people, the very people who smashed Jerusalem, these guys are going to be working now for that kingdom. They're willing to learn Babylonian culture and language. They seem to have no major issue with their names being changed from good Hebrew names that were honouring to God to names that were honouring Babylonian gods. They seem to be happy to work for the peace and prosperity of the Babylonians. But there were some issues, and we'll see more of them as the book unfolds, where Daniel and his friends said, no, on this we will not compromise. Here is the line in the sand and we will not cross it. There came those points where they knew that to do so would be dishonouring to their God. And for Daniel and his friends, eating food from the king's table was one of those issues. You've got to put yourself into Daniel's shoes though when you hear that story, don't you? That you, You've got to be thinking to yourself, there must have been those voices in his head saying, why make a fuss over food? I mean, seriously, I mean, just, just eat the stuff. It actually would taste a lot better than plain vegetables and some grain. Why not just eat it? Well, for Daniel, it was this question of faithfulness to God. Here are these four young men who are trying to figure out what living faithful, obedient lives in Babylon was going to look like. They knew what it looked like back in Israel, but now they've got to figure out what it looks like here in Babylon. It is really hard to imagine what life would have been like for these guys. I mean, I think back to when I was 14 or 15 years of age. I didn't even know where the washing machine was, certainly couldn't cook any food. Here are these guys being dragged away from home by an invading army, forced into a cadetship in this palace. But the concern for them was, how do you live a faithful life in a foreign land? They know why they're in Babylon, They know why Jerusalem has been overrun. They know it's because of the unfaithfulness of their people. That it's because of the unfaithfulness of their nation. And they seem to be determined not to make that same mistake, not to repeat the failures of their own people. But how do you live as God's people in a foreign land? must have seemed like a very lonely place, mustn't it, for these four young men as they're trying to learn this new language I teach a scripture class down at Balmain East. Uh, There are two new students in in my class who are from Finland. Not a word of English. And for the first couple of scripture lessons, the the two girls have just sat there and cried, uh, which is exactly what they're doing in their own classrooms as well. They've got no idea what's going on. They're trying to learn the language and trying to understand the differences. I can't help but think it must have been a little bit like that for these two, these four young men. And you get a sense of the loneliness. There's a, there's a psalm, Psalm 137, which sadly was made into a song by a band called Boney M, if you're old enough to remember it, which is quite a pity because they turned it into this boppy little dance tune, but that's not what it was when the psalm was written. This is what the psalm says. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat, and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? 
They're living away from the land, away from the temple. They have no king. It must have seemed like a very lonely place. Now, in a lot of ways, our situation today is completely and utterly different to theirs, isn't it? But the similarities are there. How do you live your Christian life in a country where less than 10% of people would profess to be Christians? How do you keep pressing on as a Christian in a society that often seems unsympathetic and sometimes even hostile to what it is that you believe? Well, I think there are two things that we need to learn from this opening story in the book of Daniel. First one is this. One thing that gets stressed in this chapter is that God is still there at work in everything that's happening. It must have looked like God has completely abandoned them, but that's not what the passage says. Right at the very beginning, first verse, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple. God is the one who's handing this over. See, God is the one who's in charge of all of these things. God is the one who rules over what's happening, not Nebuchadnezzar. This is God's world and he is in charge of all that takes place. This is not beyond God's control. This is not something that slipped past God while he wasn't watching. When Daniel asks not to eat the food from the king's table, it is God who is at work there again. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official's permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel. God's not missing in action here. God's there, and he's not just there, he's still in charge of all things, still ruling over everything. And the same is true for us. We can sometimes feel tempted to think that God maybe has forgotten us, feel that we're left alone in the world. We can be tempted to think that our circumstances, that our situation has slipped past God, like God's got something more important to do. But God is the God who's in control of all things, all of the things in our lives. And because, like Daniel, we know that God is in control we can have confidence as we seek to live faithful and obedient lives. But there's something else. Like Daniel, we need to be ready to say no and ready to say yes. For Daniel, it was this issue of not eating food from the king's table. He made a choice that could have been costly. He made a choice that could have landed him in all kinds of trouble. But he made a choice because for him it was a question of faithfulness to God. And you and I are going to be faced with those choices as well. It may be things that happen in your workplace, things that you're asked to do or to participate in. And you have to be ready to say no when those circumstances arise. And you have to be ready to face the consequences of saying no. We have to be ready to live out what it is that we believe and to not compromise on those issues where, it, where it's a question of faithfulness to God. 
But again, it's amazing to see how many things Daniel is willing to say yes to in this passage. They didn't try to escape. They didn't try to flee back to Jerusalem. He's happy to work for the Babylonian Empire, willing to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. He rises to a prominent position in Babylon, happy to learn the language and the culture, doesn't seem to mind having his name changed, doesn't draw that line. But there does come a point where he does draw the line. He knew that being faithful in his relationship with God was more important than anything. And the New Testament tells us that we need to be ready to say no as well. This is what Paul says to Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself for a, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Daniel was willing to say no. And we need to think about those circumstances in our lives where we need to be ready to say no. It may mean that people won't understand. Your choice may even put you on the outer. Your choice may even be costly. But like Daniel, we need to be convinced above all of God's faithfulness and our faithfulness to him ought to be a high priority. Uh, Brad Thorne's been back in the news just recently. Brad was uh, a rugby league and a rugby union player who played for the All Blacks. Um, and Brad became a Christian in his time in rugby league. I know it's, it's hard to imagine a Christian who plays for the All Blacks. I can't believe it myself either. But, but apparently it is true. But I remember hearing Brad talking one time um, about touring in Europe, particularly touring in the UK. He said that that was one of the toughest times for him in his Christian life. And he said that he needed to start working weeks before they got on the plane and thinking how he's going to approach those situations that he will find himself in when he gets to the UK. Rugby players in, in Europe are treated pretty much like gods and can literally have whatever they want, whenever they want. And so for him as a Christian, he'd start preparing himself for those temptations that he was going to face. His priority was to be a faithful follower of Jesus, a faithful husband and a faithful father, but a faithful follower of Jesus in that time in the UK. There is a man who, like Daniel, put a priority on his faithfulness to God. He knows that God's faithful to him. He's clearly seen that in Jesus. And he is committed to being faithful to God every step of the way, even if it's going to cost him. So where are the Daniel moments in your week? Where are the times and the places where you need to be ready to say no? Where you need to draw the line? Because it is a question of your faithfulness to God. Making sure that you don't participate in those activities or those conversations. That you don't do those things because you know that as a Christian that's not right for you. 
Where are those Daniel moments in your week? This is what Paul says to Timothy. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ.